welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Um, I'm Steve Took, and I'm here today with Matt Wynn. Hi. And Aslak Helisoy. Hello. And our special guest, uh, Megan Folson. So Megan is a renegade product owner. Uh, so I'm really interested, Megan, what do you mean by a renegade product owner? Um, well, I think I don't really conform to sort of the traditional view of what a product owner does. Um, uh, so I've kind of gone a little bit off on my own track based on experience and, and working with a lot of different types of companies and, and teams. Okay. So maybe we should start with, uh, what the traditional view of a product owner is. What, what do you think most people think of as a product owner? Yeah, well, I, I think it's sort of rooted in this idea of a product manager, um, which I think has for a number of years um, come from uh, the marketing discipline. Um, so, so it's either product, product managers are either um, people from marketing who um, are concerned with mostly sort of marketing aspects of a product um, or project managers who are concerned with delivery of a product. Um, and there's, and sometimes the two sort of roles have been munched together and, and um, product owners try to either be a pro- project manager or, um, or be a product manager in the traditional marketing sense. I find I, well, like different places I go, it means something completely different. In, in some places it, it it almost me like it. So and the other role that it sometimes seems to blur with is business analyst. So sometimes you see quite a sort of senior person calling themselves a product owner who has a business analyst or two that works for them. And in other places, there's somebody doing a job that they call a product owner, which is just basically exactly the same job as that business analyst in that other place was doing. So what do you do that's different to this traditional um mold i i probably there are probably some things that i do that might look a little bit like some of the aspects of of some of those roles but generally i think what i do differently is is focus on different things um uh i'm not i've product managed um a number of different teams quite a lot of different teams actually um and i've i often end up in situations where i'm not a domain expert um so, uh, but I still managed to deliver a successful product in that environment. And I think the, the reason for that is because I focus on um, being clear about uh, what will provide value to the business and value to the customer, um, understanding who that customer really is. Um, and, uh, and then I just keep asking the questions and stay curious. Um, eventually I do gain quite a lot of domain knowledge in the course of that, but, but I actually think, um, it, it, it can put you at a disadvantage if you have too much domain existing domain knowledge, um, and you're trying to build a new product that is innovative and that you, you require a lot of input from customers. That sounds like, like Matt was saying this, uh, some of the product owners he's come across are often confused with the business analyst role but quite often business analysts don't necessarily have much domain knowledge they just come in and they're able to good business analysts can ask the right questions and discover the domain knowledge and 
then apply knowledge from other areas to help like build the right thing. Um, and I guess that's a similar skill that you're talking about here. Yeah, that, I think that's part of it. Um, but I, I think also um, staying focused on um, on what the goals are. For, so, so you're you're constantly walking this line between how are you how are you doing something good for the business, right? Um, I mean, what what does the business want out of this, and where do you want to take the business as a result of this? Um, and um, and conversely, how do you provide value to the customer? Um, and so, sometimes those two things can be in direct conflict. Um, and so I think uh, as a business analyst, um, you're focused on the analysis piece of it and the asking questions, but you're not focused on the owning the decision-making process. Um, so, so you kind of have to take it to the next level and say, okay, I've, I've discovered who my customers are. I've discovered uh, what the business is looking for here and how to make the most impact with the business. And sometimes you, you have to actually influence that um, with the business. Um, and then you have to be willing to make the hard decisions. Yeah, because sometimes even within the business, there's conflicts, aren't there? So there'll be different departments that would like the software to be doing different things. And that's one of the problems I often see teams facing is if they've got kind of a weak product owner the team are getting dragged around in different directions by different parts of the business and and trying to kind of please all the people and actually just making a bit of a mess yes i i have seen situations like that too and i think to be really successful as a as a product owner you have to be willing to put yourself on the line and make a decision and and take the responsibility for the decision that you're making and say no to people yes rather than just asking the developers to go faster yes exactly yeah it, there is a lot of scope having a tantrum yeah yeah there's a like i, I sort of see it as a as i i trade in the currency of features you know <laughs> so like i you know it's like I'll, I'll give you you know one feature for um some extra time or i don't know I guess this thing about making a decision as well, that, that means the product owner really has to be empowered. Because I've, I've definitely worked places where there's someone who is the product owner, but well, that's their, their role, but they're not able to make those decisions that themselves. They have to go back to a steering committee. Or So this thing about product owner not being empowered, where do you think that comes from? Why, why, do, why do some product owners not have decision power? When you're building a product, there's a lot of investment that goes into it. Um, and, um, if you're in a large organization, you have executives who, um, have their targets tied to it, um, and, uh, or various, you know, incentives tied to getting this product out, um, or investment money and investors, you know, yelling at them to get the product out. Um, you know, there are various ad nauseum things that, that put pressure on, on, stakeholders or executives within the business. Um, and so they then don't want to relinquish control of that decision-making power to, you know, ye old product owner. Um, and that's where in some cases um, influencing skills come in handy. And I've actually, I, you know what, when I've given talks, I've had this question come up because I talk about um, uh, 
being a product owner and being empowered. And I've talked about that in terms of the team as well, like in terms of developers being empowered to make product decisions and to understand um, the product and the customer and the business and make decisions around that. Um, and people always, yeah, I've had people say to me, that's not as easy as it sounds. Um, and, and I think when you've worked in an environment where, um, you know, that, that culture just isn't there, it's really hard to just step up and say, you know what, I'm going to take this decision-making power and then, um, and then ask for forgiveness later. You know, that's, it's not an easy thing to do. I remember you talking about that dynamic in that talk you did at QCUP. And I seem to remember you talking about like the, the example of um, Obamacare and how, you know, in that project, somebody needed to have had a frank word with the president, if that was what it came down to. I seem to remember you talking about that. Yeah, I, re- I remember uh, I did I did say something along that line. And I think really it comes down to courage, right? Um, it's been my experience then, particularly in large organizations, decision-making um, becomes sort of a vacuum. Uh, and even if you... Um, you know, even if you say, okay, I'm, I'm the product owner and, and I'm being told I have to defer all my decisions to this steering committee or whatever, um, quite often um, people give their power away. You know, quite often people don't realize how much actual power and influence they have and how much decision-making ability uh, they do have um, and or could take on if they had the courage to do it. So the thing is, courage is, is like the other side of the vulnerability coin, though, isn't it? So what are you making yourself vulnerable to if you sort of step up and and see take that power? Have you had some bad experiences with that in the past? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody ever shouted at you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've, I've had um, people shouted at me and people have blamed me for things going wrong and... Um, you know, and some, you know, rightly or, or wrongly, right? Um, but I think when you, it, it's a difficult job. When you take on the job of product owner, um, you, you sort of know that that comes with a gig. Um, and, um, you know, you, you just learn, you learn from your mistakes and move on. And I think this, of course, I don't, I don't want to sound um, like I'm, delivering platitudes, but this sort of comes back to um, not being afraid of failure and not being afraid to take those risks and start starting to develop a personal style where um, you can fail and then learn from it and then do better next time um, and do that several times if you need to, but just don't stop. And not being afraid of being shouted at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really really sucks to be shouted at that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it really sucks. And, um, and I think the worst thing that can happen actually, and I mean, honestly being shouted at isn't the worst thing, but, um, or, you know, I've actually had people cuss at me, right. Like, and, and say horrible things to me, but, um, but the worst thing really like in my mind and, and um, it is not that because, you know, I, I can, I can shore myself up against that, and I can know that the that whatever the person's saying isn't personal. You know, they're they're com- probably coming from a place of fear or anger or something that really it doesn't have anything to do with me personally as a person. Um, but but the worst thing for me as a product owner is when um, 
people in a position of power have the ability to take away the key tools that I need to be able to make the decisions. So like money, for example, or, you know, traffic or, um, you know, things like that. Access to data, access to technology. Yeah, sort of passive, passive aggression. Yeah. Those are the most difficult things to deal with. Okay, so if um, what's the best piece of advice you could give to someone who's maybe starting out on their first product ownership role? Um, I would say three things. Um, be very clear on what your business goal is. Um, um, I've uh, just a brief anecdote before I move on to the next two. But um, so I've been I've been in situations where. Um, I came into the team and, um, and nobody really understood what they were building and people didn't understand why, um, you know, uh, the team wasn't delivering. Um, and so after um, sitting with the team and having a discussion and sort of talking through what they all thought the goals were, um, it became obvious that um, everyone had a different notion of what the underlying goal of what they were trying to achieve was. Um, so usually your goal is a singular um, objective and, and you can simplify it down to a single sentence very often. Um, and, and it's a good exercise to try to do that. And once you do that, you'd be surprised at how um, priorities start to fall into place. So the second thing is, is understanding, really know who your customer is. Is it, is it somebody inside the company, outside the company? Is it a consumer like who is that person, and how? What is the, um, what is the chain of communication? Like, how are you going to be able to get feedback from that person, from that entity? Um, and then the third thing I would say is, don't ever stop being curious, um, because curiosity is what drives you to ask the questions and just and to discover new things. I probably should say something about measuring in there somewhere too. Like, get your analytics right. Well, that's so how do you how do you know? How do you know when you're doing a good job, do you think? I, the, the, the customers will always tell me if I'm doing it right. So the, the, the business is getting what they want out of it and the customers are happy. That's how I know I'm doing a good job. I think it's really interesting that, that link between the, the, the clear business goal and knowing who your customer is because actually like the customer, who the customer is for that particular business goal might change over time like in the first stages of some startups it might actually be that your customer is about gaining investment so you're trying to build things to show off so that you can get this this money in and you, you the team have to know that that's the goal and actually we're not building things for real users yet it's stuff to show off that we can do this for real later um, and I guess I guess you have to have that goal clearly laid out that we're going for investment right now and the customer that we're working for is the person who's going to buy into the business, not the end user. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Steve. Um, I, I think sometimes the hardest part of the job is getting everyone aligned about the goal and getting and being truthful about what the, the real goal is. Um, but once you do that, then you can magic starts to happen. How do you communicate what the goal is? Well, okay, so you can communicate what the business goal is and, and you, can, you can help the team understand. Um, but at the same time, you, you said previously that it can be a disadvantage if the product owner is a domain expert. Mm -hmm. 
So if the product owner isn't the domain expert, who will then translate the, uh, the business goals into requirements for the product? Um, I mean, it, it really depends on the context of the business. And this is, uh, this is why I say it's really important to continue to be curious and to be able to ask questions. Um, because sometimes when you walk into a business, you, you, it's obvious to you where the problem is. You know, what, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes they have dozens of problems they're trying to solve. Um, and so, so if you're, if you're, I think if you're a good product owner, um, you will be able to tease that out. You know, what, what really is the, the area of most biggest impact for the business here? Um, and you can help them if they, if they haven't already help them articulate the problem that they're trying to, to solve as a business. Um, and then, and then turn that into a goal. Um, so you, I don't think you need domain knowledge to do that, to be able to identify problems. I think you just need the ability to be observant and to ask a lot of questions and, and listen. When I join a new domain as a programmer, I've usually find it quite overwhelming. Um, there's just a lot of language that people, you know, people are using special words. Um, is is that true as well at the level of product ownership, or is it is it not so bad when you're not right down in the details of the specific business rules? Um, it, it's certainly true, and I think a lot of the job um, is around. Um, cutting through a lot of that um, because there's a lot of jargon being thrown around and people will have a lot of, you know, people have their own agendas and they have their own interpretation of, of numbers. Um, and uh, I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm not by any stretch saying this is an easy thing to do, um, but it takes, um, you know, sometimes you just have to know within yourself exactly what it is you're looking for um, and, and keep rooting that out, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what, what is the answer you're trying to get at? Um, and, and it is, it is actually part intuition, you know, um, you, you do have to, you do have to filter out a lot of stuff sometimes. Megan, something I want to just change the tackle, tackle the conversation a little bit is just to, so from your perspective, cause like one of the things I often um, find teams struggling with around like the relationship between the techies and the product owners around the issue of technical debt and refactoring. And obviously like we all uh, are very much into BDD and TDD. And one of the massive benefits of doing that is that you're refactoring, keeping the code clean. Um, and, you know, I'm, I find myself very often having to explain to product owners what the business benefit of this, of what refactoring even means and then what the business benefit of that activity is. Um, and I, uh, I wonder what your perspective is on that. Like, you know, do you, do you find yourself having to explain to your peers? Do you, where do you, where, how do you make those calls about how, how clean the code should be and how do you influence teams to behave the way you want them to behave? Well, I mean, to be honest, like, so uh, I started off getting involved in that, right. And getting involved in that question and saying, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we need to do a big refactor. So let's put it on as a story. Um, I quickly learned that's not a good idea. <laughs> so um, what, what I've now 
come to is um, is keep the team focused on one thing, and that is what is the thing that's going to provide value to your customer. And I keep articulating that in every way possible. And even when I write the story um, that they're that they're going to build, that's that's what. Um, I want them to focus on. Um, and, and we discuss how we measure that and, and all of that stuff as well. Um, like what is the, the underlying goal? What is, what is the goal we're measuring for? What's the data we're trying to get here? Um, and and we, we stay focused on that. Um, and then um, we say, if you need to refactor, you know, you own this, right? You own this story. If you need to refactor, you need to make that decision on your own. I'm not going to interfere in that decision, right? Um, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't ask the team to. I don't give the team deadlines for features or anything like that. Sometimes, um, as a business, we have a deadline that we're working towards. I mean, as the team I'm working with right now has a very hard deadline that they they're working towards, like as a team. But I never give deadlines for features, right? Um, and so all I do is say, um, okay, where are we with this deadline? We know what we're trying to achieve with this deadline. And I just keep like trading out the cards and trading out the scope, right? As necessary as we approach that yeah. deadline. Um, and that's, you know, that's my part of, that's my pretty much like my job. But um, so I guess the short answer is I've learned to put the ownership back on the developers to refactor when they believe it's necessary, but not call it out as a, as a separate thing that we need to like set time aside for. But if you felt that you had a team that weren't doing enough refactoring that, you know, you could sense that they were kind of, because the thing I often see is that the developers implicitly believe that they ought to be hastier than the product owner would actually like them to be. Yes, that's true. So they, they rush things because they want to please and get things done quickly and actually, if the product owner knew what a mess they were making as they went, the product owner would be saying, hey, it's all right, calm down, slow down. <laughs> so do you find yourself having to kind of give those messages and influence the team like that? I, that 100% I agree with you, yeah. How, but how common is it for product owners, in your experience, um, to understand the business benefits of, of refactoring? Not common at all. Do, I mean, have you ever come across people, product owners who, who, who understand what it is? No, and you, you know what? I think very often they don't understand. Um, but I think even more than that, I think the pressures that are put on a, on a product owner sometimes can cloud their judgment around things like that. And I, I speak from experience here, you know. So um, I actually, you know, when I wasn't a product owner and I was a, contributor on the team or doing coding myself, um, um, I understood the benefits of refactoring and I, and I understood the, um, the problems with, uh, that come with, you know, with not constantly trying to improve your code. Um, and I, I saw all of that firsthand. Right. Yeah. Um, but as a, as a product owner, um, it, it when uh, <laughs> I, if I had a if I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me we need to refactor the entire code base um, I would be very very rich right? <laughs> um, and so uh, I've sort of started like like okay let's let's back up a bit when you think about teams and you think about um, developers um, coding and what coding is coding is almost like a, a reflection of your brain right um, and. Um, and you understand it, and it's very personal to you. 
Um, and then somebody else comes and they're like, this makes no sense to me, right? And so the whole uh, process of collaboration is around getting people to appreciate how each other think, right? Um, and so I think when, when you've got new developers who come into a team or when you have teams coming in and looking at code for the first time, the temptation is always, this is horrible and this is messy and we need to refactor the whole thing. Um, and I've, I've never actually, I don't think I've ever in my life heard a new developer come into a team and say, wow, this is beautiful code. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> so, so, so what I'm getting at is like when I became a product owner and I started sort of understanding, like, you know, owning those pressures of delivering something for the business and delivering something to, uh, against a KPI that should meet a deliverable for the business, um, then uh, the refactoring question sort of started to seem like if, when people come in and say, we need to refactor the entire code uh, base, then my, my answer starts to become no, <laughs> right? Like, how can you, uh, you know, we, we don't have time to spend two weeks refactoring the entire code base. Um, so um, so you, you do have to walk that balance right there's always a balance between those two between those two viewpoints i suppose we need to refactor the entire code base is a sort of developer equivalent of an exec shouting at you isn't it yeah it is actually yeah it is just developers don't <laughs> shout they they sort of they whine don't. yeah that's, that's, that's a really good way to put it matt <laughs> <laughs> it's just pit little little niggles all day long yeah. <laughs> so you touched on the subject of metrics earlier and we've talked a little bit about KPIs just then. So how do you go about figuring out what you need to measure or getting that baseline measure? Yeah. Once you figured out what to measure, how do you go about getting the baseline measure? Um, that's a very good question. Um, it's not always easy because getting a baseline measure um involves getting data about the performance that went before, right? Um, so, so coming back to the question of how do you decide what to measure, that's entirely dependent on what your underlying goal is, right? You know what I mean? You're like, if you have a good goal, very often the measurement becomes quite clear. Um, you know, we want to increase the number of bookings on our website, right? Um, we're, we're not interested in um, necessarily increasing traffic. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's your goal. Maybe increasing traffic is more the goal than the bookings. Um, you know, if you're a social network, you know, maybe you're more interested in getting more people on there and getting more people to sign up or getting more people, um, to engage. Um, but it, it all depends on the context of the business um, and the problem that you're trying to solve for the business. Um, and, you know, what I always try to distill it down to one problem at a time, right? Um, it, you, you don't want to try to solve too many problems with the thing you're building. Um, and uh, so you pick the problem, you commit to it, um, and uh, you try to keep the metric as simple as possible. And then once you know that, um, then you go about trying to get the uh, the data about what you're measuring against. You know, you're, what you're measuring against might be if you're building something new, brand new that's not out there at all. It might be trying to get the numbers from your competitors um, or who you think your competitors might be. 
um, or it might be a target that, um, you know, that you've just put a finger in the air and projected against. Um, but, um, or, but, um, but quote, more often than not, you're rebuilding a website that was there before and, and had some kind of performance metric. Um, very often, if you're rebuilding a website, um, I mean, I find myself in that position quite a lot. And very often in, in, in that position, part of the reason I'm rebuilding it is because it wasn't properly measured in the first place. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's difficult to get that baseline metric. And, and I think the more difficult thing is then educating the business on um, what really is the valuable metric, right? And, and how, do they, how do they visualize the funnel? Like, what does that funnel look like? And what are the metrics? How are we going to track success all the way from you know, the traffic acquisition point to through to, you know, whatever transaction you're looking for it. it that's just an example. There might be other visualizations of a funnel, but um, it, it's not like there's no sil silver bullet answer. It's just really about um, trying to distill it down to the problem you're solving. And then, you know, and then looking at the metrics that are there and then facilitating the conversations around it. Can you give us an example of a, of a metric that you've used, like a concrete example of sort of how, how it's helped you steer decisions. Yeah. Um, well, um, I'm I'm working with a, a travel company right now, and uh, and our, the metric we're working towards is to increase the number of bookings. Um, so um, the the reason that metric is interesting is because we're not saying um, we want to increase the um, revenue or increase the average basket value of a booking. Um, our, our only goal is to increase the number of bookings. Um, so, so, and, and, you know, when, when you look at it that way, um, there may be a business reason for that, right? Like may, maybe you have capacity that you have to fill out, uh, out and you have, um, other, uh, ways of getting revenue from the customer. So maybe the business is more interested in that volume than they are in, um, you know, achieving the revenue goals um, because they'll achieve the revenue from the volume later on. And that's not your problem from a product point of view. So all you're trying to figure out is how does this product perform? Like, is this product performing the way we expected it to or not? I had something else. One other thing I wanted to tie it back around to, but it's gone out of my head. Like, so you say you're a renegade, right? But you've been speaking complete sense to us for the last half an hour, 40 minutes. Why, why are you a renegade? Like, what's wrong with the system now that means that you're the exception rather than the rule? What's everybody else doing wrong? Like, what are the kind of anti-patterns that you see out in the field? And how, do, how can we fix that? How can we make the system better? Um, I think the best way to answer that is sort of, it seems to me like, um, like the role itself, like when you, when you run across other product managers, very often they're on, on one side of the journey or the other, um, or on one side of the product cycle or, or the other, um, but they don't really take a holistic view um and so so you have product people who are far more focused on the on the technical side of things um or on the delivery side of things and you have product people who are far more focused on the 
um, on the marketing aspects and, um, and they don't get involved at all in the decision making around the product um, or around the technical aspects of it. Um, and I actually think it's really important to be involved in all aspects of it. I mean, you need to be able, you can't be afraid of the business and you can't be afraid of your own developers. Um, but I, I quite often see product manager, managers who are afraid of one or the other, right? So isn't, this is not a loaded question, <laughs> isn't, it a prob, isn't it a problem that some methodologies, some software delivery methodologies, um, mandate the presence of a product owner in order to, to follow this methodology and and teams trying to use this methodology you know they try to fill all the roles but they don't necessarily know who to put in that role so they just elect someone to be product owner that isn't really um, equipped to be a product owner and is, is that something you've seen is that some, a problem uh, I think um, I, I know exactly the the methodology you're referring to. Um, and I think, yes, I think actually the product owner role in that particular methodology tends to also be confused with the, uh, let's call it the team facilitator role. Um, and and um, quite often the two, they interchange the two. Like you take the, the person facilitating the team and stick them into a product owner role. Um, or you take the product owner and, and, and force them to do the team facilitation aspect of it. Um, uh, I, can, I can see you trying very hard to, to anonymize it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't want Theo to have to edit what I said out later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that is exactly right. I think... Um, I mean, look, I think it's important to have somebody who owns the decision making, you know, um, but it, if you if you don't get the right person in there or if you don't get somebody who who has the right sort of traits, um, it, it can be a complete disaster. Yeah. It's weird because I think quite often the situation I see is that the person who is fulfilling the role of product owner is kind of the manager of the team, like they're the boss. And in a way, that's right because they're making decisions and they're kind of controlling the budget. But I think it it often creates problems with that dynamic about the pace of the team, that the team are sort of in that dynamic of being eager to please the boss and... Um, Maybe the way things used to be was that the boss would be pretty much on their back about like the deadline and is it done yet? Are you gonna? Is it really done? Is it done done diggity done or just done done and that kind of thing? And uh, they're used to that dynamic and maybe that dynamic just drifts through when they start doing an agile methodology that they still that's the way they relate to one another. And do you think it's necessary for the product owner to be the boss or can they just be a peer of the team and just be? you know, the person in the team who has to make the calls about what the team are going to prioritize this week. They don't necessarily need to have kind of managerial authority over the team. And in fact, do you think it's a problem when they do? That's a really loaded question, isn't it? Yes. Uh, one are, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, lo it is a loaded question. Um, but 
uh, no, absolutely not. The product owner should not be the boss of the team. Um, and, and certainly the team shouldn't have any line ownership, a line, man, you know, any kind of, there shouldn't be a line management relationship at all. Um, that I think by nature, a product owner has a lot of influence, an extraordinary amount of influence, as you, as you sort of said, you know, you've got, you've got access to the money, you've got, a, you, you have access to the, to the key decision makers in the business as well. Um, and, um, and people do look to you for decisions. They want, you know, they want that person to be there to, to, to make decisions. However, um, uh, I do not see myself as the boss of the team or even managing the team. Like I don't, I don't manage the team, right? Um, they manage themselves for the most part. Um, I step in when I have to, if it's blocking, if I think it's blocking progress, right? Then I'll try to use what skills I, you know, I've picked up to be able to deal with that sort of conflict or whatever it is um, that requires some managerial skill. Um, but, um, but I also, I way prefer working with teams where I'm not the only one with those skills, right? Like there, there are a lot of other people who can step in, you know, and do those things as well. Um, and it, it's a, it's a very, you can't, you can't really collaborate well in this business if you try to dictate everything and prescribe things. Um, and, and, and I think it just sort of like once you get into that mode, I mean, I, I've seen young product owners um, take refuge in that behavior because they get uncomfortable, you know, they get uncomfortable with the, with the problems they have to solve and with the uh, things they don't understand coming from the development team um, or with the length of time it takes to, to solve some of the problems. Um, and so they start to, um, you know, go back to things like trying to set deadlines and, and, and telling developers that they have to have something done in a week. And, um, and it's always the exact wrong approach to that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think, you know, it, I agree. If, if you think you're the manager of the team, or if you think that, you know, that your role is to sit and tell developers what to do all day, you should not be a product owner. Just a final note on that. I like I um, I make a I, like I, it's really easy for me to accidentally somehow get involved in, in a problem solving that I shouldn't be. But I really um, empower the team to solve problems, um, and I try to um, you know make the problems clear wherever possible um, that they're trying to solve. But you know that's you know a product team. Uh, developers, that's what they're good at. You know, they're creative problem solvers. Um, and, you know, if you, if you step in and try to solve those problems superficially for them, um, you're not allowing them to do what they do best. Oh, I want to work for you. Except it's not working for you, is it? It's working with you as we've established. Exactly. Yeah. It's working with me. Exactly. That's exactly how I see it. If people want to ask you questions about anything they've heard today, where's the best place that they can get hold of you? Yeah, they can. Uh, I have a Twitter account. It's uh, I think it's mfolsom. Um, you can reach me at, on my email, which is mfolsom at gmail.com. Cool. That's great. There's, there's also going to be the comments section at the bottom of the webpage. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Megan. Um, it was fun. Go.